This is Ashen Voices, I'm J.D. Gray. The recent film Sound of Metal tells the story of Ruben, a drummer for a loud rock band who suddenly begins to experience hearing loss while on tour. The remainder of the film follows Ruben as he learns to live with his hearing loss. Just this week, the film received six Academy Award nominations, including nominations for Best Picture and for lead actor Riz Ahmed, who plays Ruben in the film. As today's guests share, Ruben plays into a long history of hearing loss portrayed on screen. Our guests share what these films might reveal about societal attitudes towards communication differences, and we talk about what's at risk when these films miss the mark. Plus, we talk about what makes Sound of Metal stand out. I'm J.D. Gray. This is Asha Voices. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. If you work with young children and their families, much of your work involves engaging parents. The Hannon Center specializes in making this crucial part of your job easier. Learn more at hannon.org voices. The film Sound of Metal is receiving praise, in part for its use of sound, simulating the experience of hearing loss for the viewer, and even the main character Ruben's cochlear implant when it's activated for the first time. Ruben lives a life defined by excess. His music is loud, he has issues with addiction, and when he suddenly begins to experience tinnitus followed by sudden hearing loss, Ruben's character exhibits a deep, explosive emotional reaction. It's Ruben's emotions that are at the core of what drives this film. Today on Asha Voices, we're discussing these emotions and what we can learn from this reflection of how someone responds to hearing loss. We're joined by three guests. Peter Ivory is an audiologist. He's a professor in and director of the Doctor of Audiology program at Cal State LA. Michelle Hu is a pediatric audiologist, and significant to this conversation, she's someone with hearing loss. She uses bilateral cochlear implants. Mac Haygood is a faculty member at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where he teaches comparative media studies. He's the author of Hush, Media and Sonic Self-Control, and the host of the Phantom Power podcast. Although we also discuss what could be improved in the film's portrayal of audiology and hearing loss, I began by asking the panel what they recognized in Sound of Metal as something the film portrayed well. Michelle answers first. I was really excited to watch this film. I did appreciate several um, elements in the film, specifically how they portrayed the cochlear implant activation sounds, or what the recipient who was being played by Rizamed heard. I hadn't been able to replicate or be able to play the sound of an activation for any of my patients. I am a bilateral cochlear implant user, but I also program and activate cochlear implants for my patients who receive them. So I really loved how they portrayed the sound for him, getting into his head, creating that tinnitus sounding like sound as well as the anxiety, the apprehension that Rizamed's character went through when his hearing was deteriorating. Another thing is, though I don't feel like I'm a part of the deaf culture, from what I have seen, a lot of what I have seen, it is a beautiful culture. I loved getting insight into that community the camaraderie, the bonds, the beautiful language that they use with their hands. And I appreciated seeing that on screen. Yeah. And Mac, what about you? When you watched this film, were there things in the film that you said, wow, this film is portraying something particularly well? Well, I too um, was really blown away by the portrayal of deaf culture and thought it was so 
sensitively and well done. And in fact, I've already shown this film in a class that I do on, on sound and media um, because it gave students a chance to, to think about deafness as a culture rather than a disability, which is a perspective that um, most of my students had not been exposed to before. And then I actually paired it with some TikTok videos by someone named Nakia Smith, who is an African-American uh, young deaf woman. And she does videos about Black American Sign Language. So it was a really interesting chance to think about not only the concept of deaf culture, but also the fact that deaf culture could contain cultures um, and that there could be dialects of American Sign Language. Um, and so my students were really seemed quite taken with the whole thing. I thought it was great. Peter, what did you see in, in Film Sound of Metal that you thought was something that maybe was portrayed particularly well or accurately? For me, the principal point of accuracy in uh, Sound and Metal was really the despair and the anger and the emotions that uh, Ruben, the, the main protagonist, went through with his sudden onset of hearing loss. We could discuss the inconsistencies and the improbabilities of whether that his condition was caused by noise exposure. That's one of the problems that I have from an academic perspective. But as a film that is going to cause a sea change in sort of popular culture viewpoints of, of deafness, hearing loss, the deaf community, uh, while being very, very ambitious, it, it really hits the mark on a lot of those points. And I think one critical part in the film comes from uh, Ruben's misunderstanding of what a cochlear implant will do for his sense of hearing. It's implied that he thinks his hearing will be fully returned to the form it was before the hearing loss. But of course, that's not really how cochlear implants sound. So when he learns about the procedure, Ruben is on tour. He's searching for a quick solution that will allow him to continue touring. It's also suggested he is dealing with issues of addiction. Peter and Michelle, when you see patients such as Ruben, someone that's going through an emotional moment, do you look at where they are in their life and factor that into how you offer or explain treatment? Uh, Michelle, maybe you could speak on this first. Absolutely. Just to back up a little bit, I absolutely can understand sudden hearing loss. I grew up with a progressive type of hearing loss where every time I hit my head, my hearing went down. Now, that didn't really affect much of my life in first grade, third grade, sixth grade. But when I was a senior in college, I had my last and most significant drop. And I was absolutely devastated. I could relate to him. I could. I felt helpless, frustrated, anxious, and to tell you the truth, I said, I need a cochlear implant. I want one. What am I going to do? For me, my hearing loss or my hearing came back a little bit with the help of intratympanic steroids. They're injected uh, through the eardrum into the middle ear. But yes, when I have a patient, typically minor pediatrics, if there is someone with a sudden hearing loss, for example, if they get a certain disease, meningitis, for example, has the potential to knock out their hearing. Because of what it will do, it can ossify that cochlea. Yeah, we need to act quickly. However, there is a lot of counseling that goes along with that. Where is that patient in terms of mindset? And I mentioned before, I would, I probably wouldn't have been so quick to implant Ruben in the mental state that he was in. And I'm sure Dr. Peter uh, will agree. Peter, do you agree? 
I, I, yeah, I think yeah, from a point of view of the ideological protocol and how that was all handled, that was mischaracterized. But but you know, I, I have to forgive all that, you know, based on how many nice things that still came out of it. So academically, I, w- I could quibble and quarrel with some of the things that they uh, were portrayed. The, the whole notion of of dealing with the co- the topic of hearing loss, a deafness, uh, and a, someone who has been deafened. Uh, in the case of, um, of Ruben, you know, these are all to us, to working audiologists, these are, the, this is the language, this is how we, we think about, you know, patient characteristics, uh, but it's, it's highly nuanced, you know, hearing loss uh, and, and, and deafness, capital D deafness, small d deafness, for our patients, it's multifactorial, it's, it's heterogeneous. It, one individual's experience with their hearing loss and or deafness uh, will rarely generalize exactly to another person. And that leads then to a lot of mischaracterizations. It's difficult for a filmmaker, in this case, Darius Martyr, to sort of capture all of that nuance. That was not his intent. His intent was to tell a story, to tell a narrative that was told in these basically three long plays that were all kind of connected. But the fact that there are these... uh, possibilities of mischaracterizations mean that there's a reliance then sometimes on stereotypes and then that becomes problematic as well in terms of well what, what's a hearing impaired person how do they function what do they do what's it what's a deaf person do and, and, and so on and in this case it, the boundaries get muddled up a little bit Mac, I want to ask you about another part of the communication that's being portrayed on screen. In the film Sound of Metal, the main character, Ruben, has a number of instances with tinnitus. This is one of the first signs something is changing with his hearing. Tinnitus on screen is nothing new. You wrote an article about this. It was called The Tinnitus Trope, Acoustic Trauma in Narrative Film for an online scholarly publication called The Cinephiles. Could you tell us a little bit about how Sound of Metal fits into a history of tinnitus being portrayed on screen? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a long, at this point, long history of the portrayal of tinnitus on screen. And that portrayal usually consists of some pretty predictable effects. There's this high-pitched sine wave type tone that we hear, um, sometimes maybe two tones. Um, and then a lot of the environmental sound around the character is filtered through a low pass filter. So we lose a lot of the high frequency sounds. So we get this kind of muffled kind of sound of of the environment around the character. And so this has been a way of showing acoustic trauma and also using acoustic trauma um, and this sort of what we call point of audition sound, where where the audience member is put in the position of the character in the film and, and hears through their ears, so to speak, using this as a way to dramatize trauma. And I was really interested because in the early 2000s, this just started becoming very, very common. And there wasn't much written on it in film studies. There was one article that suggested that maybe this had popped up because of advancements in sound technology that allowed filmmakers to to use this effect. Is something digital, maybe? Yeah, well, it, it, the, the, the person made the argument that it was the adoption of Dolby noise reduction in the 1970s. That actually allowed filmmakers to use higher frequency sounds than they used to. So I kind of decided to kind of pursue this in a couple of different ways in my research. One, I was like, well, 
do any films come before Dolby noise reduction that have this tinnitus trope? And I found out actually there was one in 1970, a comedy called The Out of Towners <laughs> that has like an exploding manhole cover and it's used for comical effect. There's like this ringing sound and the guy's shaking his head. So that was a real, that was like the first one that I could find. And it was decades before anyone else portrayed tinnitus in this way again in film. I also decided to use frequency analysis to see if it was true that these were frequencies that couldn't be reproduced in before the mid 1970s. Turns out, no, this isn't true, that, that these are frequencies that could have been portrayed in the 70s or earlier, but just weren't. So then I was just asking myself, okay, well, it, it must be something cultural then? Like, is there a cultural explanation for this? And one of the things that I noticed was there were some late 90s is when this really started to become something that people were doing. And Saving Private Ryan, the war film, was um, the first example that most people can think of that that had this effect. But it didn't really catch on until about 2003, when suddenly there was just this explosion of films that were representing tinnitus in this way. It was in like uh, the Lord of the Rings, Master and Commander, Hellboy, The Pianist, Children of Men, um, just just tons and tons of films. And and I started to wonder if this might have something to do with 9-11. Hmm. Because, you know, typically in Hollywood films, when there were explosions, it was as if people had steel eardrums. You know, that was like there were these <laughs> huge consequence-free explosions and then the hero just like walked through the, the ball of flame or whatever and came out <laughs> apparently unscathed in terms of his ears. And, and I started to wonder if, if after the events of nine 11 and, and the, the collapse of the towers and so forth, that it just didn't feel right to have these huge traumatic explosions and not have them affect people, you know, like the entire nation had been through a trauma and then at the same time, we were starting to get all these service members back from the Middle East. And, you know, tinnitus was the number one complaint, um, uh, traumatic brain injuries, PTSD, which, you know, are related to, to tinnitus. These, all of these things were popping up. And so I felt that perhaps, and, you know, you can't say these things for sure, but perhaps that, that sort of uh, cultural environment that we're living in now made this kind of representation of tinnitus make more sense. There's one more possibility I could, I could raise. Yeah. What, what would that be? Well, in the, in the old days um, of say like film noir in the 1940s, when you have like the private detective and he's, you know, going through the, the city in search of, of the criminal or what have you interiority, the self was represented through an interior voice. And at the same time, another way that the self was represented was through voices in people's head. So trauma, um, psychological issues were kind of represented through these voices that a character would, would hear in their heads that were portrayed on screen. But by the time we get into the 2000s, that kind of psychological Freudian version of the self has been changed because we've gotten used to thinking of ourselves um, as a kind of neuronal self. What do you mean by neuronal self? 
Well, we're used to, you know, ideas of like brain scans and, and we understand a lot more about the neurons and we, and we have these ideas. Well, when something happens, this area of your brain lights up. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, we also got used to these, uh, therapeutic psychological drugs or psychiatric drugs, um, like, you know, SSRIs that are operating on the brain. So culturally we've come to start to think of ourselves more as brains rather than these kinds of Freudian selves with an subconscious and stuff. And what are we hearing when we hear the tinnitus trope on screen? It's the sound of a brain being damaged, right? It's the sound of an auditory system in a brain and neurons being affected rather than that kind of old school vision of what the self is. An interesting idea. Uh, Peter, Michelle, any response to this? Well, you know, tinnitus uh, is associated with um, a lot of things. I mean, that's that's one of the one of the one of the problems in in working with patients who have tinnitus as a presenting complaint is that there are many potential causes of it, and therefore that that makes our ability to sort of have an appropriate intervention that much more challenging uh, in order uh, to uh, try to help them. And, and the complication, of course, then is is that uh, it. Tinnitus is a kind of condition that there may be a physiological event going on that then leads to psychological consequences. So it's, you know, you might have heard of the term uh, psychosomatic, where a person imagines that they have a somatic or physical problem. Tinnitus is just the converse. It's a, it's a, a somatopsychic condition in which the person really has some kind of physical thing. We just can't find it? Could we put on a scan and find where's the wave and now do something antiphasic, you know, have them wear a hat that's got some kind of antiphasic tinnitus, you know, eliminator or something like that. But since there's so many potential causes, we can only kind of do a, a handful of things to try to reduce the likelihood of it occurring. Tinnitus has likely been around as long as there's been, you know, consistent loud sounds causing noise exposure, uh, hearing loss, which is the nominal cause of what's happening with Ruben here. And uh, as well, um, the title sound of metal, uh, if you ever he heard metal banging together, that's one of the largest causes of noise-induced hearing loss. Saws, any kind of machinery. You know, we think of this starting in the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s is really, you know, when all these big machines, printing, typesetting, all of these sort of industrial tools. Not surprisingly, the deaf people at that time found employment there because guess what? The noise didn't bother them. And so, you know, it was always the case that, that uh, the deaf people worked in the typesetting in the printing industries. So historically, there's, there's some connections and, and sort of the, even the name Sound of Metal uh, was, was a, a, you know, a brilliant choice uh, for a movie. We're taking a quick break, and when we come back, we discuss the history of hearing loss on screen and what can result from misrepresentation. Support for Asha Voices comes from the Hannon Center. If you're an SLP in early intervention, school may not have prepared you to involve parents. The idea can be daunting. How do we help parents understand their role? What tools do we use to engage them effectively? How do we coach them so that they're successful in applying what they learn? Hannon's online workshops have the tools you need to make parent-led intervention work. 
Visit hannon.org voices to learn more. One of today's guests, Peter Ivory, teaches a course on audiologic rehabilitation at Cal State LA. It's in that class he asks his students to critique films that portray hearing loss. He asks them to look at whether the portrayal of hearing loss was effective or necessary. I asked Peter to share with us why he includes this assignment in his course. In order to really appreciate what the person with hearing loss or deafness is going through, you sort of have to identify the emotions of what they're going through. And I thought one of the better ways to give them an an emotional experience that would provide some degree of interaction or intersection with the the experiences that persons with hearing loss and deafness would, would likely be going through was to have them watch, you know, film. And so I have them look at a list of movies and pick one out and then do the, uh, the sort of critique and then to post it so that other students could benefit by that. They really like this. They really take this on as a fun assignment. There have been many notable films featuring hearing loss. You shared your list with me, among them Mr. Holland's Opus, Children of a Lesser God, A Star is Born. What are a few that stand out to you? I'll give you my top five. And they're for different reasons, because as you, as you look at you know, how hearing loss has been depicted over the, uh, the years of uh, film in America, the first thing we have to kind of understand is that the first lens, so to speak, that we're looking through is, is how does society view people with differences or disabilities and how society's perceptions of individuals with differences and disabilities has changed. So has the cinematic uh, renditions thereof. So in my quick top five uh, films, uh, one of them sounded metal simply because it's contemporary and it's ambitious and, and it brings a couple things together. Uh, Children of a Lesser God had the same kind of effect on American society, I think, in 1986 based on a Broadway play starring Phyllis Freilich, who was a deaf actress, a deaf child, deaf parents, had all deaf siblings. And the play, Children of a Lesser God, was essentially based on her and her husband's experience. Freilich won the Tony Award. Uh, Marley Matten won the Oscar, the youngest, uh, one of the youngest uh, females to get that, and the only deaf person to get an Oscar in 1986. And with Marley Matlin, then after that, taking on many, many roles, sometimes she played a deaf person, sometimes she didn't. She was all over TV shows. She was on every season of West Wing. She was Celebrity Apprentice, made the most, you know, so wonderful, wonderful career. And again, so that that's a, a play uh, and movie that has this sort of a, it's a romantic film. So a lot of people are into it on that level, but it's also the intersection of the hearing world and the deaf world. Real quickly, my other, my top five, in the same sense that Sound of Metal shows sudden hearing loss and the despair that comes with it, uh, a movie called Perfect Sense from 2011, get the setup here, global pandemic that causes people to progressively lose all of their sensory capacities and shows basically cinematically how people react when you lose your hearing. And my guess is Darius Martyr saw it. What makes you think Darius Martyr saw this film? Well, because when the character in uh, the character played by Ewan McGregor in Perfect Sense, uh, he was very angry and behaved very much as uh, Ruben did, angry, striking out, you know, screaming, total rage and, and uncontrolled. Uh, both Sound of Metal and Perfect Sense capture that kind of anger of, uh, of this tremendous loss that you're very aware of. And it's, and it's very sort of an, an immediate kind of, kind of thing. 
the other two on my list, and I don't want to take the time here, but the other one, uh, The Miracle Worker. And so The Miracle Worker's story has been told several times of uh, this young woman who had um, not deafness from birth, but deafness maybe from scarlet fever, but more likely meningitis that took away her vision and sight probably at around age 18 months. You know, the problem with The Miracle Worker is, you know, as it's a it's, it hits on one of the themes that intersects the deaf community, which is deafness as victim, deaf person, person with hearing loss as victim, deaf person, hearing person with hearing loss as somebody that needs to be fixed. And so patronizing in a way, the fixer is almost the hero, not the person with the, the disability. So there's lots of things that in our current viewpoint of, of the story, the story would likely be retold differently now. I don't know how exactly we would retell the story. The fifth film Peter chose was unlike the others. It contained content sensitive in nature. It was a documentary, and it covered a horrific story of abuse. Maybe it's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about narratives in, in cinema. But a documentary, if you want a horror story, a real-life horror story, Maya Maxima Culpa, Silence in the House of God, uh, in which deaf children were uh, systematically sexually abused in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee for decades by the priest that ran the, the deaf school there. Why is it that you decided to include that film in your list of five? Because it, it shows the vulnerability. It shows the problems that occurred when people were deprived of language and communication and, and things that essentially were, were preventable, quite honestly. And, and it's, again, it's, it's a horrific story. And I think, again, for me, it's, having, you know, the students that I teach have an emotional experience about this. And if you don't have an emotional experience with that, then, then, you, then it's like you need to find another, another profession. You need to do something else. Do you think that this uh, practice, do you think it's creating a, an additional sense of empathy in some of your students for the future clients? Well, that's, that's obviously the intent. And, you know, I've, I haven't collected data on it uh, after the fact, but um, I know that when students connect up with a personal story or students hear of individual cases, they remember that. They're not going to remember fact sets some, as much as I'd like them to, but they'll remember that's that guy that I told the story about uh, with his, you know, who wore the hearing aids for 30 seconds and put them down on the table. And I could see his wife start to cry. And, you know, there you go. Um, they remember that story. They remember that guy. When there's a portrayal of a communication disorder or difference, there's a chance to build awareness. There's also a chance of furthering misunderstandings. It can even go so far as to create a perceived stigma around the subject. What are you looking for when you see hearing loss on screen? It's tricky to, to answer that because the filmmakers are likely engaged in a different narrative. And so to the extent that hearing loss uh, is truthfully represented, I suppose would be the w what I would want to see, but I know that's you know idealistic and maybe even naive on my part. When you know hearing loss or deafness is used as a dramatic device, something that's unnecessary. But so I would say truthfulness. I would say validity is really what's most important to me. I think hearing loss is such a spectrum, and then really, what is the director or producer trying to? give their audience education, um, sound of metal, emotion, 
you know, Mr. Holland's Opus was a beautiful story about a family going through a different journey, not necessarily centered around hearing loss. What I look for, I don't necessarily look for anything unless I'm looking to be educated. Most of the time, you know, it's a, it's a movie. It's an entertainment for me, um, a quiet place. I, I knew it was going to be kind of scary. I knew that... I, want, I was interested in how they would bring cochlear implants up. It wasn't focused on the cochlear implants, really. Sound of metal, That's I was a little bit uncomfortable with it, bec- not necessarily with hearing loss, more so because personally because I'm an audiologist. So I was like, hey, come on, you know, did you have to do the stereotypical types of thing? So I don't necessarily look for or listen for anything unless I am seeking something out to to be educated on. I understand. Mac? So, you know, one of the things that I, I find interesting is having studied the representation of tinnitus, the, the sort of conflict between advocacy and uh, catastrophizing or problematizing tinnitus so we see sometimes, especially this isn't more in the past, I think, where advocacy groups would create these public service announcements that sounded kind of like tinnitus. It's a lifelong sentence to, you know, it's a torturous hell, you know, or whatever, which I, I would be very, very worried that would cause people watching TV at home to maybe take their own tinnitus, which they hadn't thought of as a scary or bad thing and really problematize it which could get them on that bad cycle of, of negative listening and really raise the volume and presence of the tinnitus for them. And yet at the same time, folks in the tinnitus community are right to say, we need more research. We need more money invested in, in this area. And, and how do you do that except through communicating through the media and representing tinnitus? So you'll see folks with tinnitus creating YouTube videos where they're like, this is what my day is like. And they use that exact same tinnitus trope and, and say, this is me walking through my day. I'm hearing this all the time. What do you think that's like? You know, and I get it. Like I understand the impetus for doing that. It's a tricky situation. I don't have any prescriptions for it, but when you ask like what I'm looking for, that's one of the tensions that I'm often kind of focusing on. You know, most of, most of the times in the past in videos or TV shows that are supposed to be humorous, someone has hearing loss and all of the inappropriate ways to address that person come up, you know, just yelling louder, getting up in somebody's face, not just saying the same thing or one word over and over again versus offering another explanation or another way to say it. Whereas now it's much more, how can we educate? How can we advocate? How can we sympathize or put ourselves in those people's shoes? A lot more people are being bolder and braver to let people know what helps them or let people know what it is like to be in their shoes. Thank you all for your time today. I appreciate being a part of Asha Voices. Thanks. Are there on-screen portrayals of hearing loss that stuck with you? Do you have thoughts on Sound of Metal? Leave us a voicemail at 301-296-5804. We might use your message on an upcoming episode of the podcast.
ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from the Hannon Center. The best early intervention is about more than language. It's about being the bridge to those deeper connections that change families' lives and brighten children's futures. See where your career can take you at hannon.org voices. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.